In the late 18th century, the French and American revolutions ushered in a new wave of liberalism across the world. Inspired by the thinkers of the Enlightenment, French citizens and American colonists were no longer content to be the subjects of corrupt monarchies. In 1848, this revolutionary fervor spread to Germany, Austria, the Italian states, Sweden, Romania, France, and parts of Latin America. The goal was to overthrow the old guard and give power to the people. Unfortunately, the revolutions of 1848, as they became known, were a dismal failure. But the fervor for change wasn't totally extinguished. It survived in the form of a political ideology that was equally inspired by the harsh economic and social changes brought on by the Industrial Revolution. It promised justice for all. This political ideology came to be known as socialism, and Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were the ones who started writing about it. Marx and Engels were social theorists, and together they developed a version of socialism that was considered more scientific than previous doctrines. Their approach made the theories seem to be more practical and accessible. This so-called Marxism spread like wildfire among European intellectuals looking to one day overthrow the surviving monarchies and the capitalist machines that monarchies increasingly ruled through. For the next 50 years or so, theorists expanded upon Marx's original ideas while secretly plotting the socialist revolution. That is, until the 1900s, when yet another theorist's ideas became the dominant ideology among global socialists. That theorist was Vladimir Lenin. Lenin's ideas under the banner of Marxism-Leninism became one of the de facto schools of thought for leftists. Why? Because it triumphed where the previous liberal revolutions failed by toppling the world's remaining monarchies. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season of Dictators, we're exploring three of the 20th century's most famous Marxist-Leninist leaders, Vladimir Lenin, Fidel Castro, and Ho Chi Minh. Their rules shaped the course of world history in the 20th century and beyond. This week, we begin with perhaps the world's most influential Marxist theorist and leader, Vladimir Lenin. A dedicated, lifelong revolutionary, Lenin spent over 20 years fighting to topple the Romanov dynasty with the hopes of igniting a worldwide socialist revolution. Next week, we'll examine how Lenin's short reign was marked by constant violence. Whether it was civil war, rebellions, or state-sponsored terror, Lenin's new Soviet Union was a study in chaos. It not only derailed his plans for international communism, but paved the way for someone even more insidious to succeed him. Please note, our dates will correspond with the Julian calendar, which was used in Russia prior to 1917. Coming up, we head to the Volga. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and my lotto rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. In 1613, Mikhail Romanov was crowned Tsar of Russia, officially founding the Romanov dynasty. Unfortunately, what followed was not exactly the glorious intergenerational reign Mikhail surely imagined. Largely viewed as an inferior royal family by their European counterparts, the Romanovs were stuck in a feudal time capsule. While the rest of the world modernized, Russia was stuck in the Middle Ages. Life under the Romanovs was always one step forward, two steps back. If one Romanov ruler made liberal reforms, the successor generally undermined them. Meanwhile, the Tsar was always an undisputed autocrat. The rule of law was based on the Tsar's authority. By the mid-1800s, the Tsarist rule had become unimpeachably ironclad and was growing more reactionary by the day. Perhaps it's not surprising that two anti-authoritarian ideologies began sweeping through the burgeoning Russian intelligentsia, socialism and anarchism. While neither ideology outlined a future for Russia, both recognized the economic disparity between the autocracy and the growing working class, as well as the abuse of power perpetuated by the bourgeoisie which became extremely clear after the emancipation of the serfs and subsequent land reforms made by Tsar Alexander II in 1861. Freed from serfdom, these peasants either chose to stay in the countryside awaiting their newly promised land or to flock to the cities, seeking jobs in the factories. Unfortunately, these peasants were still exploited. In the factories, because they were uneducated, their employers gave them low wages, long hours, and horribly dangerous working conditions. And the Tsar didn't seem to care. Before long, the rebel intellectuals formed several secret political organizations. And although they didn't agree on everything, they did share one opinion. In order for the working class to survive, the Romanov dynasty needed to go. Vladimir Lenin was born into this political powder keg on April 10, 1870, in the Volga River town of Simbirsk. Located roughly 550 miles east of Moscow, Simbirsk was an isolated outpost, a former military garrison turned sleepy provincial town that was home to a handful of doctors, civil servants, and educators. It was by no means luxurious, but it wasn't impoverished. 
and to that end, Lenin grew up quite comfortably. His father, Ilya Ulyanov, was an inspector of the region's public education system, which gave him a hereditary noble rank and thus a degree of social status. According to historian Victor Sebastian, Lenin himself never tried to conceal or fudge his roots, though the Soviets later created the myth that he came from the people and was from low social origins. Later Soviet historians also tried to conceal the fact that Lenin's maternal grandfather was Jewish and that his father had Kalmyk ancestry. Kalmyks are a Mongol subgroup. Essentially, the future leader of Russia wasn't himself fully Russian. But he was brilliant. Education was paramount in the Ulyanov household, and the young Lenin was an exceptionally precocious boy. In school, he received nearly perfect grades at all levels and in all subjects. This early success brought out a competitive nature that would stay with him throughout the rest of his life. But with Lenin's intelligence came arrogance, which made it difficult for him to make friends. One former classmate noted that one couldn't say that he was liked, rather that he was esteemed. Even at an early age, Lenin kept people at arm's length, a habit he maintained for the rest of his life. His only real relationships were with his sisters, his mother, and later his wife and mistress. However, it was Lenin's complex relationship with his older brother, Alexander, that would send him down his political path and the road to revolution. Four years older than Lenin, Alexander was the exalted Ulyanov child. Nicknamed Sasha, he was smart, handsome, and charming. Everyone in the family worshipped the ground he walked on. But none of them knew that Sasha was becoming increasingly radicalized. In the 1880s, Sasha attended St. Petersburg University. Almost immediately, he fell in with a secret organization known as Norodnia Volya, or People's Will. The People's Will was a radical populist group that espoused both socialist and anarchist beliefs. Their mission was simple, bring an end to the imperial family by whatever means necessary. In 1881, the People's Will successfully assassinated Tsar Alexander II. Six years later, a group of People's Will conspirators plotted to kill his son and successor, Alexander III. The person financing the plot was Sasha Ulyanov. Unfortunately for the assassins, the Imperial Secret Police, known as the Akrana, discovered the scheme. Sasha and four co-conspirators were arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. On May 8, 1887, Sasha and the others were led to the gallows at the imposing Peter and Paul Fortress in St. Petersburg. When asked if he wanted the last rites, Sasha refused. Instead, as the hood was lowered over his head, he shouted, Long live the Narodnea Volya! And then the trapdoor fell. Lenin wasn't particularly close with Sasha. Like the rest of his family, he idolized his older brother, but both boys were stubborn and arrogant and had difficulty getting along. Still, there was mutual respect, and Sasha's execution at the hands of the imperial state was a crushing blow for the 17-year-old Lenin. The consequences weren't just emotional. The Ulyanov family quickly became ostracized within their town. This, too, left a deep impression on Lenin. 
With each passing day, his hatred for the bourgeoisie grew. He viewed them as traitors and cowards. Prior to Sasha's death, Vladimir showed no interest in politics. Now, it was all he could think about. Practically overnight, he had a new mission in life, to avenge his brother by toppling the Romanovs and the bourgeoisie along with them. For the next several years, Lenin continued his education, eventually becoming a lawyer. But he was simultaneously diving headfirst into revolutionary literature. Ironically, he didn't have to hide his reading of Marx and Engels. One of Marx's seminal works, Das Kapital, that was edited by Engels, miraculously made it past the government's official censors. They believed few people would read the book and even fewer would understand it. But the text that had the greatest influence on Lenin wasn't Das Kapital. It was Nikolai Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done. The novel tells the story of a woman seeking economic independence from her controlling parents. And Lenin, like legions of other young Russians, identified strongly with the novel's revolutionary character, Rachmatov. Lenin read the novel five times in a single summer and decided to model himself after Rachmatov. As Professor Adam Weiner writes, like Rachmatov, Lenin denied himself physical comforts tamed and trained his flesh, tried to make himself hard and to harden himself to the sufferings of others. Rachmatov devoted his entire life to the revolution. So, too, would Lenin. In 1893, 23-year-old Lenin moved to St. Petersburg and attempted to make inroads among socialist and Marxist circles. But because he dressed more like a peasant than an intellectual, few took him seriously, which, given the ethos of the movement itself, was completely ironic. Still, over time, the gatekeepers couldn't help but see the intellect behind the shabby clothes. As one young socialist recalled, he glowed with a force, not charm exactly, not charisma, but an intellectual energy. He personally identified with the cause in a way that was magnetic. The forceful energy allowed Lenin to connect with actual working-class people, too. Up until his move to St. Petersburg, the working class was merely a concept, an idea. After all, he never grew up around proletarians. But once he visited the factories, he discovered his gift for explaining Marxism. It was also around this time that he started writing theory, all under pseudonyms to avoid detection from agents of the Tsar. Lenin's reputation was growing, quickly. But there was still a gap between him and the top echelons of Russian Marxist circles. After all, he'd never met them. The heavy hitters were all living in exile. So, at the end of April 1895, Lenin joined them, taking a four-month trip through Europe. It was during this journey that he met two leaders of Russian Marxism, Pavel Axelrod and Georgi Plikhanov. Since the early 1880s, Plikhanov and Axelrod had been living in exile, composing Marxist texts and getting them smuggled into Russia. Texts that Lenin had devoured. In the spring and summer of 1895, Lenin finally met these idols, and he especially impressed Axelrod. He saw a fire in the young socialist and realized he could be extremely useful to the cause. 
So Lenin returned to St. Petersburg with smuggled Marxist literature, likely with the intention to distribute these pamphlets among the proletariat. But Lenin soon realized the best way to get the word to the masses was by establishing a newspaper. Unfortunately, the paper didn't publish a single edition. As it turned out, one of Lenin's co-founders was an undercover agent of the Tsar's secret police, the Akrana. And on December 8, 1895, the police raided Lenin's office and charged him with sedition. For 14 months, Lenin was imprisoned without trial. And then in 1897, he was sentenced to three years of administrative exile in Siberia. Exile under imperial rule was miserable. Thousands of prisoners died due to starvation, exhaustion, and beatings. The conditions were brutal. Lenin's experience of exile, however, was different. He was sent to the small town of Shushinskoya, known as the Italy of Siberia. Conditions here were not as bad as in other places. He was able to hunt, go on walks, swim, and even correspond with others. Most importantly, Lenin was able to make use of his time by writing his first book, The Development of Capitalism in Russia. Though it would be far from his most famous, it marked the first major step down his path to becoming the most famous Marxist theorist after Marx himself. In January 1900, 29-year-old Lenin's time in Siberia came to an end. Naturally, he was itching to get back to work, especially considering that while he was away, the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, or RSDLP, was established. This was the first Russian Marxist political party, and it aimed to unite all of the various Marxist factions. And Lenin, despite the consequences he just suffered for founding a newspaper, was convinced that the party desperately needed its own news source. As he put it, news was the central organ that would be the party. Unfortunately, publishing the paper would be impossible in Russia. The Akrana was everywhere, and Lenin knew what awaited him if he was caught again. So in July 1900, Lenin sought official permission to leave Russia and to his delight, the government granted it. They believed he'd be less trouble abroad. They were wrong. Coming up, Lenin splits the party in two and makes enemies out of allies. The internet, what would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loey, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the Internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? 
Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. For nearly 13 years, 30-year-old Vladimir Lenin had dedicated his life to Marxist revolution. Most of his activity consisted of light agitation and theory, but it was enough to get him exiled to Siberia. After his release from exile in early 1900, Vladimir knew that the imperial secret police, the Akrana, would be hounding him constantly. But he had no plans of slowing down. He was determined to get a socialist newspaper up and running. So he did what many other prominent Russian Marxists did, he went into European exile. It was in Europe that the young revolutionary gave up his birth name, Ulyanov, and adopted Lenin. The origins of the name are a complete mystery. Some have speculated that it is a nod to the River Liana in Siberia. But for whatever reason, by the end of 1901, Lenin decided to stick with it. And it was the name that helped build his newspaper into an important Marxist publication. Dubbed Iskra, or The Spark, the newspaper got off to a chaotic start for a variety of reasons. First, Lenin's fellow revolutionaries didn't all live in the same town. They were spread all over Europe. Lenin chose Munich as his base, while Plikhanov and Axelrod were in Geneva. Next came the issue of getting copies smuggled into Russia. Complex, clandestine routes had to be forged through Sweden and Finland, and smugglers had to avoid the Akrana. Many of Lenin's so-called agents were captured and tortured while distributing material. But the biggest problem involved personal clashes amongst the revolutionaries themselves. As Lenin's reputation grew, Plikhana felt increasingly threatened. For all intents and purposes, he was the face of Russian Marxism. And he wanted to keep it that way. Lenin, meanwhile, was as stubborn as ever. And he could hold a grudge. The pair had frequent disagreements. They generally fizzled. But they were starting to crack dangerous fissures between the old guard and new. Meanwhile, there were other personalities to contend with. Much of Iskra's success came not just from Lenin, but Lenin's partner, Julius Osipovich Cedarbaum also known as Yuli Martov. The two revolutionaries first met in St. Petersburg in 1894 and immediately bonded. Martov was the yin to Lenin's yang. As historian Victor Sebastian described it, Martov was chaotic where Lenin was controlled, a bohemian where Lenin's habits were distinctly bourgeois and highly eccentric where Lenin was conventional. Their relationship was so close that one revolutionary noted if Lenin were ever to be in a duel, Martov would be Lenin's second. Still, their differences could sometimes cause tension, and they gave each man a very different role within the Russian socialist community. Martov was the more personally popular, while Lenin was seen as the more effective leader. 
Iskra editor Alexander Patryasov explained, Lenin embodied a personage of iron will, indomitable energy, combining a fanatical faith in the movement, in the cause, with his great faith in himself. He demonstrated this by developing his own brand of socialism, culminating in 1902 when he published one of his most influential works, What is to be Done? Named after the Chernyshevsky novel, Lenin's What is to be Done provided the foundation for what would eventually become Marxism-Leninism. Its ideas were later solidified in The State and Revolution. At its core, Lenin's socialism called for the creation of a revolutionary vanguard party to fight for the workers. By now, he had come to the conclusion that the working class would never rise up and revolt against the Tsar. Instead, what was needed was a party of professional revolutionaries. Published in March 1902, What Is To Be Done was a provocative polemic. Lenin was calling for actual proletarians to stay out of the war for the proletariat and instead leave the fighting to the intellectuals. In fact, much of what Lenin wrote wasn't particularly new. The views he expressed were already shared by many Marxists. Plikhanov and Axelrod had made similar statements, arguing that the working class needed bourgeois intellectuals to lead for them. But Lenin's clear, concise writing set the Marxist world on fire. Many young socialists around Europe saw Lenin as the future, the man destined to spearhead and lead the overthrow of global capitalism. Unfortunately, Lenin was also gaining attention from the German secret police. And he feared that the Akrana, who had agents in Europe to keep tabs on dissidents, would encourage the Germans to bring him down. So, in April 1902, Lenin and Nadia, his wife of four years, moved to London. It was in London that Lenin met a young Russian Marxist named Lev Davidovich Bronstein, better known as Leon Trotsky. Trotsky was also making a name for himself with his incendiary writings and had articles published in Iskra under the name Penn. Trotsky was just passing through the English capital, and the pair didn't spend much time together. But Lenin was impressed. So much so that he even wrote this glowing review to Yuli Martov. How we need more such revolutionaries of such high ability and promise. But then conflict with his old comrades arose once more. Toward the beginning of 1903, Georgi Plikhanov blindsided Lenin by having Iskra's offices moved from London to Geneva, where he resided. But the Iskra debacle was simply the tip of the iceberg when it came to problems within the RSDLP. As historian Victor Sebastian sums up, the Plikhanov-Lenin relationship was again almost at a breaking point. Plikhanov loathed Trotsky, and the popular Martov tried to get along with everybody, but was becoming increasingly exasperated by Lenin's intolerance with anybody who argued with him. In this regard, the RSDLP sounded more like a group of infantile high schoolers than the leaders of a socialist revolution. And soon, they all realized as much. So, they decided the time had come. They needed a party congress to clear the air. The Second Congress of the RSDLP occurred in the summer of 1903 and unfortunately accomplished the complete opposite of its intended goal. 
the gathering descended into a free-for-all of petty grievances and name-calling. Instead of bringing the Russian Marxists together, it literally tore them apart. The issue that brought things to a head was completely trivial. Party membership. Lenin wanted only professional revolutionaries involved and to keep party membership closed to the actual proletariat. Yuli Martov wanted the opposite. He believed that the RSDLP needed foot soldiers as well as leaders, and thus he wanted to open membership up to actual proletarians, workers, strikers, demonstrators, etc. Martov won the membership debate. However, in other matters, Lenin's side prevailed. Those who sided with Lenin became Bolsheviks, based on the Russian word for majority. And those who sided with Martov were called Mensheviks, based on the Russian word for minority. By the end of the Congress, the RSDLP had split into these two factions. There would never be a reconciliation. In the wake of the Second Congress, Lenin lost myriad allies and friends, chief among them Yuli Martov and Leon Trotsky. Glikhanov and Axelrod, the fathers of Russian Marxism, also cut ties with him. But the divorce also meant that Lenin lost control of Iskra. Now under Menshevik hands, the paper frequently lambasted Lenin as a tyrant. It even likened him to Robespierre, the ruthless leader during the French Revolution who helped oversee a massive wave of executions and massacres in France. Trotsky wrote that the Leninist edifice is built on lies and falsifications, and that when Lenin talks about the dictatorship of the proletariat, he means a dictatorship over the proletariat. Lenin, for his part, didn't hold back either. He labeled the Mensheviks as nothing more than opportunists. They weren't real revolutionaries like the Bolsheviks. In the year and a half that followed the Second Congress, the Russian Marxists, the men who were going to topple the Romanovs and capitalism, were plagued by petty infighting. Both sides were so consumed with attacking one another that neither group realized that Russia was a powder keg ready to explode. In January 1905, Lenin received word that a peaceful protest against the Tsar had erupted into chaos. The event would become known as Bloody Sunday, and it would spark the revolution of 1905. Coming up, revolution sweeps across Russia. Now, back to the story. Between 1900 and 1905, Vladimir Lenin dedicated himself to Marxist theory and revolutionary activity. As he rose to prominence, his arrogance and ideas ultimately led to a split among the Russian Marxists. But while Lenin quarreled with his comrades in Europe, Russia was on the brink of collapse. In October 1894, Tsar Alexander III died, elevating his son Nicholas II to the throne. Nicholas was completely ill-equipped to run a vast empire, and worse yet, didn't really want to. At the same time, he believed that it was his preordained right by God to lord over the Russian people. In essence, he was stuck in medieval times, while the world around him modernized. This culminated in a pattern of misguided decisions, both home and abroad. One of the worst was going to war with Japan in 1904. The war was over land on the east side of Russia, 
and Nicholas, a well-known racist who called the Japanese, quote, yellow men and, quote, not entirely civilized, thought it would be an easy victory. It wasn't. In a year, the Japanese practically decimated the entire Russian Navy. Among Russian subjects, anti-war sentiment ran high, and it was soon coupled with other grievances. Paramount among them were the horrible labor conditions among the working class, which had yet to improve since the emancipation of the serfs. On January 9, 1905, peaceful demonstrators marched to deliver a list of grievances to the Tsar. But before they could even make it to the Winter Palace, they were greeted by soldiers of the Imperial Guard. The Guard rained bullets down on the crowd and sliced through the protesters with their sabers. When the dust settled, over a thousand people were dead, though the official report claimed between 200 and 800 casualties. Instead of feeling beaten down by the massacre, the people rose up in defiance. And for the next several months, mass protests, strikes, and political assassinations were carried out throughout the major cities of Russia. Of course, the Tsar responded with a brutal crackdown of his own, especially against Russian Jews. According to historian Victor Sebastian, between 1905 and 1906, over 3,000 Jews were slaughtered in pogroms from the Baltic states to Crimea. Such brutality inspired the people to nickname their czar Nicholas the Bloody. Watching from Europe, Russia's Marxist bigwigs were completely stunned. While Lenin always believed that revolution was possible, he was caught completely off guard by the events of Bloody Sunday. Worse yet, he was nowhere near it. He immediately started writing pamphlets and articles that encouraged violence against the oppressive government and began plotting his return to the homeland. Meanwhile, the Tsar was ready to make some begrudging liberal concessions in the interest of restoring order to his empire. First, Nicholas issued the October Manifesto, which relaxed censorship and gave protection to free speech. He also agreed to establish an elected legislative assembly called the Duma. No major law would be passed without the body's approval. The only caveat? Nicholas had the power to disband the Duma and force new elections. When Lenin finally got back to Russia in November, he immediately encouraged a boycott of the Duma, which he called a miserable travesty and a fraud. In later years, he would advocate Bolshevik agitation within the Duma. He also attended the first all-Russian Bolshevik conference on Christmas Day 1905, where he met a brutish Georgian named Joseph Jogashvili, a.k.a. Joseph Stalin. Upon their initial meeting, Stalin didn't make much of an impression. And as longtime Dictator's listeners will recall, Stalin was disappointed at how uncharismatic Lenin was in person compared to his writing. However, Lenin realized that the thuggish Stalin could serve a bigger purpose for the party, raising funds. Stalin was a gangster and a thief who had absolutely no moral objections to bank robbery. And Lenin, who knew the party couldn't survive on donations alone, endorsed the idea. Of course, Lenin's approval of bank robberies provoked yet another battle with the Mensheviks. They were understandably completely against it. And because they had the numbers, they eventually outlawed robberies entirely. 
Lenin couldn't stay in town to continue making his case anyway. After all, the Tsar was still in power. When the excitement of the revolution of 1905 finally dissipated, Lenin returned to Europe. For almost 10 years, he bounced from city to city. Such was the life of a Russian revolutionary. You are either dodging Akrana's spies or writing theory and attacking your political enemies. Or making predictions about the future and waiting for them to materialize. One key prediction made by most socialists in Europe was that an impending global war was coming, and it would bring about the end of capitalism. For Lenin, it wasn't so much that he wanted a global catastrophe. Rather, he believed the impending crisis was one that the workers could take advantage of to help create a socialist state, not just in Russia, but the world over. But this war hadn't materialized, and with each passing year, Lenin became less confident that it ever would. Until the summer of 1914, when the apocryphal war came to fruition. In August 1914, World War I broke out across Europe, with Russia, France, and Britain on one side, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire on the other. Initially, there was a great deal of public support for war in Russia, and a wave of nationalism swept the country. Nicholas even changed the name of St. Petersburg to Petrograd in a patriotic attempt to make the capital sound less German. But for Russia, the war quickly proved to be a complete and utter mess. After some initial victories against the Austrians, the Russians found themselves up against better-trained and better-equipped German forces, which they were unable to best. Nicholas, the unsavvy military leader that he was, refused to admit defeat. Lenin, meanwhile, wasn't phased. He actually believed that defeat was preferable to victory. If Nicholas won, it would set back the socialist revolution for God knows how long. This sentiment put him at odds with some Russian Marxists, like Plikhanov, who were swept up in the wave of Russian nationalism. Over the next few grueling, war-torn years, however, Russian pride and patriotism quickly evaporated. Before long, anti-war and anti-Romanov sentiment once again plagued Russia. By the start of 1917, public opinion against the war had reached a fever pitch. Throughout the winter, food rationing led to bread lines, which left hungry workers outside shivering in one of the coldest winters to date. February 23, 1917 was International Women's Day, and in keeping with tradition, women took to the streets of Petrograd to march. However, this year, the 130,000 marchers were shouting, we want bread, and we are hungry. By the end of the day, those chants turned into down with the Tsar and give us peace. For the next several days, the demonstrations and protests grew bigger and violent. They spread to Moscow, and Nicholas was outraged. He ordered the police to shut it all down by firing upon the demonstrators. However, a regiment of soldiers in Petrograd joined the masses, and the police refused to murder them. The demonstrations continued. Nicholas was oblivious to the severity of the anger facing him. His advisors, however, were not. They realized that this was different from the revolution of 1905. The people were angrier, hungrier, more cynical. 
this time the promise of liberal reforms wouldn't be enough. They knew there was only one solution, abdication. Nicholas, with no allies left, saw no choice but to agree. On March 2, 1917, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the throne. And just like that, the Romanov dynasty was no more. It is important to understand that the February Revolution wasn't some grand Marxist scheme. And although socialists participated in the demonstrations, the whole thing occurred spontaneously and was initiated by women. However, that didn't mean the Marxists weren't going to capitalize on the new power vacuum. A few days after the abdication, a meeting between all the socialist factions, Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, and an agrarian-centric group called the Socialist Revolutionaries, or SRs, convened to discuss next steps. It was Lenin's enemy, Yuli Martov, who suggested that they approach the Germans for help getting back into Russia. Lenin, shockingly, set aside his grudges and agreed. The plan worked. Through a series of backdoor negotiations, the Germans agreed to help smuggle Lenin and his comrades back into Russia and help finance a Bolshevik revolution. After a seven-day sealed train journey, Lenin arrived at the Finland station in Petrograd on April 3rd. Speaking in front of a large crowd, he promised to bring an end to the war with Germany and to put bread on everyone's table. Of course, that was easier said than done. At the time of his return from exile, a provisional government had been established. Groups from all political spectrums, liberals, conservatives, SRs, Bolsheviks, and Mensheviks were vying for control. The ultimate goal was to figure out what the new government would look like now that there was no monarchy. But from the very beginning, the provisional government was weak, in part because it shared power with the Petrograd Soviet, a council made up of laborers, soldiers, and peasants. The split power meant no one knew who was actually in charge. Lenin knew that such chaos was the perfect catalyst for a Bolshevik takeover. So throughout April and May, Lenin hit the pavement trying to sway people to the Bolshevik side. Lenin and the Bolsheviks eventually got a boost from the Russian military. While his constant call to end the war garnered accusations that Lenin was a German spy, war-weary soldiers actually found Bolshevism appealing. In the beginning of July, a group of sailors at the Kronstadt naval base mutinied and joined up with the Bolsheviks. Between July 3rd and 7th, the sailors, soldiers, and workers violently clashed with police in the streets of Petrograd. Many believed this was the moment of a Bolshevik coup. However, there is no evidence that Lenin actually called for the July violence. While he encouraged it, as historian Victor Sebastian notes, Lenin wasn't even in Petrograd when the fighting broke out. And it's out of character for a Bolshevik putsch to occur without his presence. Regardless, Lenin was blamed, and the provisional government put out arrest warrants for him and other members of the Bolshevik High Command. Once again, Lenin was forced to leave Russia. Luckily for Lenin, he wouldn't have to stay in exile for long. The provisional government was led by a man named Alexander Kerensky. Kerensky actually feared the right more than he feared the left. And in August, 
he believed the conservatives were planning a coup. They weren't. But that didn't stop Kerensky from accusing General Lavr Kornilov, a war hero, of plotting a takeover. Desperate, Kerensky sought help from the left, including the Bolsheviks, to help prevent this non-existent military coup. Ultimately, Kornilov was peacefully arrested, and the strange Kornilov affair came to a bloodless end. However, it did become a major propaganda boost for the Bolsheviks. And by the end of September, Lenin knew the time had come for a Bolshevik revolution. After sneaking back into Petrograd, Lenin met with the Bolshevik Central Committee on October 10th. That evening, they discussed plans for a real coup. Among those in attendance was none other than Leon Trotsky. Sometime after the February Revolution, Trotsky and Lenin had reconciled. And while Lenin was in exile, Trotsky had officially become a Bolshevik. Not everyone agreed that the Bolsheviks should proceed with the coup, but Lenin won out. The meeting ended with a decision. It was now or never. On the morning of October 25, 1917, Bolshevik force, known as the Red Guard, stormed through Petrograd and captured various government buildings, including the bank, post office, and the train station. They also secured various bridges leading in and out of the city. By 9 a.m., Lenin and the Bolsheviks had complete control of the city's communication and finances and met practically no resistance. All that was left was to storm the Winter Palace, the seat of the government. Despite later Soviet depictions, the storming of the Winter Palace wasn't some grand dramatic affair. Rather, it involved a series of military miscues that took nearly the entire day to correct. Finally, just before 10 p.m., two warships from the Kronstadt naval base arrived and began firing blanks toward the Winter Palace. This was the signal to begin the storm, and a cadre of Red Guards and sailors broke into the palace. Once again, they met no resistance and quickly arrested every government official they could find. Unfortunately, the man Lenin wanted most, Alexander Kerensky, had managed to escape. But that was a problem for another day. The Winter Palace was now in Bolshevik hands, and the time had come for Lenin to present himself to the Congress of Soviets. In the early morning hours of October 26, 1917, 47-year-old Vladimir Lenin arrived at the Smolny Institute to thunderous applause. It was essentially a coronation. Lenin read his decree on peace and decree on land, which promised an end to the war with Germany and the redistribution of land. It had been 30 years and five months since Alexander Sasha Ulyanov had been executed by the Romanovs. In the wake of his brother's death, Lenin had vowed to topple Imperial Russia and establish a socialist nation. And while he may not have been involved in the actual overthrow of the Romanovs, he was finally in a position to conquer capitalism. His plans would not only change Russia forever, but the world. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll dive into Lenin's attempt to create his socialist nation 
while constantly battling civil war. Among the many sources we used, we found Lenin by Victor Sebastian extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>